Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Expert Answers from Inside Scientific. Inside Scientific is the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today, we are joined by Joanna Hummer and Flory Lepreu. Joanna is an expert in open flow microperfusion at Joannium Research Help. Flory is a lab head in in vivo neuroscience pharmacokinetics at AbbVie. They are here with us to speak about cerebral open flow microperfusion's use and honing in specifically on its use in drug development and neurodegenerative disease. Let's jump in. This first one is uh, perhaps in terms of you know the types of uh, you know organisms this can be applied to. So, what are the considerations that are different for use in large species? You know, perhaps uh, some non-human primates or something of that nature. Does anything change when you use COFM on them? Well, as the brain is increasing in size, we definitely have to use longer probes. So we have to check whether the fluidic flow is still as we know it from small animals. But yeah, I said we had already some tests, some experiments were performed, and it was no problem. But I can tell you the, the longest we did in a non-human primate was to sample with a probe length of uh, one centimeter. But I think many uh, deeper is also possible. Excellent. Thank you so much. And uh, this one can perhaps apply for both of you a little bit, just because you, know, you both have experience. But do you need to do any uh, purification of the sample when you're using uh, COFM? So, you know, around the insertion site, perhaps. And, you know, is the guide canal made of the same material as the probe itself? or? So the material is the same. And the second part of the question, or the first part, if we have to do purification, well, I think this um, depends on the analytical, analytical method that will be applied afterwards to the sample. So the analytics have to adapt to a sample which contains everything which is inside the interstitial fluid. And I think proteins could be sometimes a problem for the analytical system. But this is something that the analytical specialists have to tackle, I would say. I yes. can maybe add on that, that on my own, for, 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 my, for the experience that we've performed so far, we never needed to do any kind of purification. So we use highly sensitive assays, especially for the biomarker. For antibody, we use more standard assays and it varies from LCMS to LBA. And this was um, fairly enough. We never needed to do specific purification steps. Awesome. This next question is, speaks more so to the age of the rodents, you know, used to, like what, what age is it technology safe to use? And is that recovery of, you know, that two week recovery period, is that the same if it's used at an age where the brain and the body are growing? So does that cause any you know, variations in that timeline? Well, this is a very, very good question. And most of the time we use grown up animals because mm -hmm. of the growing. So as we want to, address one specific target region, we have to avoid that the brain is growing and our probe, which does not grow with the brain, is growing out of the region of interest. Therefore, we are using usually around 300 gram uh, rats. Yeah. And in the mice, also grown up mice, everything around 25 or 30 grams. Okay, excellent. Sort of following up on that, so, uh, that rodent theme, has this been used in neonatal rodents at all? And do either of you have perhaps uh, experience with this apparatus for electromagnetic brain injury models? No, not yet, but we are always looking for uh, new ideas and new applications. And we are definitely happy to get in contact with people who have new ideas and figure out a way or a solution how we could make it work. <laughs> Excellent. This was uh, from uh, Dimitri. It's, it is interesting to what extent microperfusion can cover the space around a certain structure. So, for example, like when the hippocampus, when the substance is applied, 
So I don't know if you have uh, any thoughts on that process of applying various substances this way. I'm not sure if I understand the question correctly, but we can increase the exchange area to cover more or less area. So if we have a very small region you would like to cover, we can go down to one millimeter, no, one, one millimeter, two millimeters or one millimeter of exchange area, or we can make it even larger, cover less or more. Okay. But the diameter is, uh, the size, the diameter of the probes are fixed by mm. 0 0.5 millimeters. Fantastic. This next question is, why did you compare recovery-corrected data for microdialysis to non-recovery-corrected data from COFM? I believe this is... So, uh, yeah, that's... Yes. Yeah, that's for me. I mean, that's a good question, and it's difficult to 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 answer in in a perfect way because the two methods are actually are actually different, and we cannot do the same kind of recovery. So that's what I was explaining already during during my talk that we can do this in vitro recovery with microdialysis because of the presence of the membrane. So that's actually working quite nicely, and we can do this back calculation even for so connected to every probe. So we can. And calculate this in vitro recovery for each probe and apply that. For the COFM, it is different because we cannot use the in vitro recovery. We have to go for this in vivo. And with the in vivo recovery, we are not sure yet of the best way to go for really correcting the data. So this correction factor that I showed you now with the with the in vivo recovery is actually um, to be taken as a general factor because we cannot apply it for, we cannot have it for each probe, it's done in another actually cohort of animal. So mm -hmm. that's why we decided to compare the back calculated data with the COFM uh, data in this study that we performed as it seemed to be the most appropriate. It's not yet exactly perfect. I agree. And we are working on, on getting this in vivo recovery um, really integrated in a back calculation in some way, but we are still working on that. Fantastic. Yes. And sort of in a, in a similar vein, I suppose, is that uh, what, what were the flow rates that are used? Uh, just because there is no dialysis with COFM. Uh, this is a, a question from John, uh, wondering what, you know, since efficiency should, uh, shouldn't be as dependent on flow rate as with microdialysis. So it actually really is. Yes. Mm. So, I mean, the different flow rates that were used um, during the, the in vivo recovery spanned from, I think the highest we used was 1.5 microliter per minute, and we went down to 0 0.1 microliter per minute. And it really drastically impacted the recovery of the compound, as you can see, actually, with the curve. So, and I do believe that the diffusion of the antibody in the extracellular space is going to be highly hindered because it's such a, bad, a big molecule. And the lower the flow rate, um, the best we can actually equilibrate the, the, the perfusate with the uh, periprobe environment. And I think the highest we go with the flow rate, we will deplete the analyte in the periprobe environment and actually get lower analyte concentration. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> Fascinating. So this next question is from Nick, and uh, Nick asks, uh, a sampling can be done intermittently over time. What is the longest period that it has been done for? And specifically, he asks, uh, for example, could sampling be done at one-month intervals over a six-month period? Well, I'm not sure if I understand correctly that you would like to sample for one month continuously. This is quite a lot of time and long time. For this, one should figure out if the plastic material we are using for the tubing is stable enough to be this long in, in the um, peristaltic pumps. 
what we have done is definitely seven days in a row. And one could think of exchanging the tubing so that you can go on. But we have not done that yet. But this is an idea mm -hmm. to um, approach maybe this aware of the material, which I can uh, think of. And then the six-month question, this depends on how good the guide is fixed to the brain. There is a different ways of fixing it, either with a screw and glue. So having a screw into the skull and then placing a lot of glue around it. I think this is, makes it very, very fixed. And then the animals cannot scratch the probe off. And having it fixed so, so tightly, you can use it probably very long. I think our longest was around nine months on the animal before we just said, okay, let's go. But then there are also other ways of fixing it using just glue. And there you have different glue types and uh, these ones have to be tested how long they actually stay it all depends on the scientific question how many probes you want to have on it and if you have the space for a screw or if you want to avoid the screw because the screw might also yeah be in the way mm -hmm. of other measurements but theoretically excellent and sorry flory uh, i don't know if you uh, in your experience have you used it for extended periods of time or has your usage been more so short term or so like I've shown actually in one of my slides, we did already a chronic microdialysis where we uh, put the mice again in the setup after one week break, let's say, in between the two microdialysis. So that makes actually a total from the moment we implanted the probe of uh, four yeah, four to five weeks. And we've been already doing also so six weeks, but no more than that. Wait, so waiting time between the actual implantation of the probe and the microdialysis. Awesome, thank you. Juan asked, uh, have you validated your system with drugs that are substrates of P-glycoprotein? So with and without a P-glycoprotein inhibitor? No, no, we haven't done that yet. But this is a no. very good idea. We should maybe uh, talk about uh, this more in detail. Something to look forward to in the future then. Excellent. And has the probe been used in aged animals? So for, you know, more than two years old, and does it cause trauma to the brain tissue compared to animals less than one year old? So that variance in, does that variance in age cause any significant shift in trauma? Also a very interesting question, because we have, we have used um, aged animals, particularly for mm -hmm. Alzheimer's research as the transgenic animals have more expression or more degeneration the older they are. So yes, we have mm -hmm. used it. I'm not sure, maybe Flori can actually explain on that if there is more brain damage or does, if the brain reacts no. differently. No, so we really did not observe that. We do work with quite old mice, especially exactly in the case you just mentioned, Joanna, for Alzheimer's disease and transgenic animal. We sometimes need to wait actually more than a year. I would not say two years, but more than a year for getting the, the plaques building in the brain or the aggregating level that we need. And uh, we did not observe anything in terms of, of recovery from the animal from, from the surgery per se. No, we never had an issue. Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> so this is a, a very excited audience member. Uh, they asked, uh, do we send animals to your facility to get measurements done? So I don't know if I, either of you want to <laughs> offer that service for them. Or if you do as a, you know, automatically now, please mention it. But yeah, people want to send some animals to you folks. Well, that sounds great. Yeah. Either we usually we buy the animals from one of the producers, Charles River or so on. But if you have very mm -hmm. specific animals, then yeah, they just need to be, they have, they need to have a health certificate so that we can actually have them in our animal facility. Otherwise we cannot let them in. But technically this is how it works. We get animals and we design a study together and we do the experiment here. 
Excellent. And I would say this is mainly something to, to go to Joanna probably. So Avi is actually not a service company. So I am uh, open to any kind of collaboration always, but, but yeah, so it's, it's, it's more to, toward Joanna, I would say. <laughs> yeah. So please don't send your animals into Flurry. She, while she might appreciate them, but they probably won't, probably won't get back the results you're looking for. So this is perhaps a bit more of a utility question. Is it also possible to deliver substances uh, using COFM into the brain? So we, we talked a little bit about uh, you know getting the samples and so on and, and getting measurements, but yeah, is it possible to deliver substances? Yeah, of course. We have this open exchange area and everything, everything what can come into the probe can also go out of the probe. So we can add something to the perfusate. For example, we used it already for the money tool but also for other substances. And you can, with this strategy, go around the blood-brain barrier and directly evoke a pharmacodynamic response in the brain or make the brain do something that you would like to understand and measure the biomarkers of the response. Fantastic. And this is from Grigory. It's, do you have any information about the stability of collected COFM samples that are later stored in like, you know, minus 80 degrees Celsius, perhaps, you know, some very cold temperatures. So the sample stability, you know, collect via this method, does it vary based on temperature? Um, this is what we typically do. We uh, collect the samples and we store them at minus 80 until they get mm. uh, either sent away on dry ice or we measure them in our own bioanalytical facility. So they are stable for that. It definitely depends on the analyte. Uh, so if we measure a drug and this drug is not stable under minus 80, then yeah, this is something the customer has to know how stable their analyte of interest is under minus 80. Excellent. For the freeze, freeze and thawing processes might sometimes be a problem for some compounds. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you will tune into future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work and share science. For the full webinar, please see the link in the description. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next time.